did. So I have a question to start off our conversation today. Yes, if you would like to send your kids out to, uh, if they are uh, uh, under fifth grade and you would like to send them out to uh, uh, children's ministry that we have here at the church, uh, you can send them out right now. People will be at the back door to lead them where they need to go. My question to you this morning is this, who do you hate? Who do you hate? <laughs> Saying, <laughs> Uh, you're what? You're a void list. Yeah, that's right. Well, we're off that subject now. Now we're on to something different. But thank you for remembering last week. Who do you hate? I don't hate anybody, right? That, that's our typical response. I don't hate anybody. Okay, well, let me give you a list of people you may have forgotten about. How about people who abuse their spouse? How about pedophiles? How about Trump? How about Trump supporters? How about Pelosi? How about Pelosi supporters? How about BLM? How about the NRA? How about jerks? How about people who cut you off on the road when you're doing the right thing and they're obviously learning how to drive? How about Russians? Who do you hate? Craig, I don't hate anything. Okay, okay, so we're gonna play that card, all right? Let's, let's talk about that for a second. Do you know that God hates some things? Oh, you do? Okay, we should at least hate what God hates. Would you like to find out what God hates? It's right in the book of Proverbs 6.16. These six things are things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Ready to say it? Here we go. Everybody, here we go. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Keep going. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness breathing out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Seven things that God hates. And you're probably sitting there thinking, well, Craig, it doesn't really say hate in the Bible. You're pulling a fast one on us. Nope, it does. This is the same word used of Joseph's brothers who beat the living daylights out of him because they hated him. And then they sold him into slavery and told their father a lie that he got eaten by a goat. So this is the, the word hate that God is using in Scripture. The, the word, if, in case you're wondering, is called shana, shana. These, thing, these things the Lord hates. Here's the problem that I want to get into right away. We live in a world where it's okay to hate. In fact, sometimes it's encouraged. Hating a group's ideology is a normal thing. Well, Craig, I don't hate the people, I just hate their ideology. Here's the problem, hating a group's ideology easily leads us down the path to hating people who believe that ideology. And that's the challenge. That's the necessary conclusion most groups go to who encourage you to hate groups. Eventually, you get down to hating people. Many groups' ideologies simply go against God. You know that to be true. So we followers of Jesus Christ, we struggle with this too because we put people in groups, and those groups sometimes are like anti-God, anti-Christian, and so we think to ourselves, well, we live in a world where it's okay to hate groups, so I'm going to hate that group because of what they stand for. We live in a world that only seems to think in groups. But here's the key, everyone 
Jesus is interested in us seeing not groups, but people, individuals. Now, if you left right now, that would be the whole message, but I've got so much more to unpack with you, so please don't leave yet. When Jesus met with Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee who hated Jesus. He was in the group called Pharisees who didn't like Jesus a whole lot. But Jesus talks to Nicodemus with great love and respect and grace. When Jesus met with the Samaritan woman, we just talked about this last week, when he meets with the Samaritan woman, she represented a group that, that hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. You remember the name they had for these? They, they, call, they live in the town of drunkards. You remember that? They called them dogs. They hated, and it was encouraged in this day for them to hate the Samaritans. It was normal. In fact, if you didn't hate the Samaritans, something was wrong with you. Yet Jesus makes a beeline to this well in the heart of Samaria, sits at the well and waits for a woman to come along who needed to have a conversation with Jesus Christ. Jesus sees her as an individual, a broken person in need of acceptance. Jesus is telling us, I believe, church, in John's gospel is where we've walked this far together through it, I think Jesus is telling us, stop seeing people as groups and start seeing them as individuals. Why? Because these people have value to God. In Jesus' day, it was very normal to belong to a group. In fact, if you didn't belong to a group, you were kind of, kind of weird. Your group could be the Sadducees or the Pharisees. Your group could be the Zealots. Your group could be the Samaritans. Your group could be, there's all kinds of groups that you could belong to. You'd be in the Roman group. You could be in the Jewish group, but you were in a group. And because you were in a group, you got certain benefits. And because you were in other groups, uh, because you weren't in other groups, you were looked up to by the people in your groups. Being in groups was very normal in Jesus' day. And your value was given to you by your group. Does that sound kind of where we're at today? I think so because here, here's how I know. People who are in groups today, when they disagree with one aspect of that group's ideologies, they're cast out. Have you noticed that? And they've got to give lots of money or beg or plead in order to get back into that group. Will Smith. Will Smith walked up on stage and slapped the hooey out of, uh, out of Chris Rock. You remember that? And so he, he got cast out of his group. Now he's got to beg and plead and try and get his way back in, into the group. Now what he did was, you know, it, it was wrong. But it's just an illustration of if you betray the group that you're in, they will cast you. Everybody's in a group. You have been put into a group by the people who you know. They stick you in a group. They assume you know certain things. They assume you believe certain things. They assume you love certain things. If you fit this category that they have been taught for this group that exists in our world today and they put you in that bucket, they assume they know things about you. And the sad thing, church, is we kind of do the same thing. Jesus is trying to get us out of our cultural milieu of trying to stick everybody into groups. So Jesus is moving us from a collective mentality to an individual mentality. Take Nicodemus out of the Pharisee group. 
take the Samaritan woman out of the, out of the Samaritan group. And today we come across another event in Jesus' life where he takes somebody out of the hate category and puts him into the acceptance category. It is a powerful story, and I hope you're going to enjoy it. It happens just two days after Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman. They stay in Samaria, and then they leave, and Jesus goes back to Cana. Remember, he's on his way back home. Jesus lives in Galilee. Cana is where he turned the water into wine. Then he went down to Jerusalem, which is about 30 miles. He went down to Jerusalem. He did uh, the turning over the tables. Remember all of that down in Jerusalem for the Passover. And then he goes back up straight through Samaria, meets with the woman, Samaritan woman, and then he ends up back in Cana. And that's where we find him today. So if you're using your Bibles or your tablets, we're in John chapter 4 and verse 45. Here's where we pick up. So when he came to Galilee, that is back to Galilee, back to his hometown, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen that all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to the feast. Remember, this is Passover. Everybody makes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and all of his family and all of his friends who knew him went with him. But they had never seen Jesus act like this before. Jesus has been at Passover lots of times, but this first time he went crazy and started tipping over tables. And they feel great about it because they have been abused by these these people that are changing money and selling them produce so that they can sacrifice it at the temple. They feel good about Jesus. They think he's standing up for them. They saw what he did, and they appreciated what he did. And now he's coming home. And here's the problem. A lot of them grew up with Jesus. These are small towns. So they knew Jesus. They knew his family. They knew Mary. They knew Joseph. They heard the story of the birth. (laughs) But everybody knows Mary and Joseph couldn't control themselves and Jesus was born out of wedlock. They all knew that, or they thought they did. Now Jesus comes back there and now he has begun his ministry where he starts saying, I'm the Messiah. A lot of them said, no, it's a bridge too far. I can't believe that. Some of them started believing in Jesus. But most of them were simply doubting him. However, When he gets home to Galilee, his fame begins to circulate, and people begin to come to see him who don't know him or his family that well. And that's what happens in the story today. A man comes from about 25 miles away from Cana, uh, I'm sorry, to Cana, to see Jesus. And here's how it goes. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. This man is introduced as a foreigner, a stranger. But more than that, this man is introduced as an official. Do you know who he was an official for? You might be tempted to say Rome, that would be incorrect. It's worse than that. This guy is working for Herod. This guy was Herod's official confidant. This guy, his job was literally known, this word in the Greek means he was the king's representative. Herod was a Jew who oversaw the happenings of Jerusalem for Rome. If you got your taxes collected, Herod decided how that's going to go down. 
If you were in trouble with Rome, Herod was brought in. Herod was the one to make sure that Romans keep peace with the Jews and Jews keep peace with the Romans. And worst of all, Herod was a full-fledged Jew, which means Herod was a traitor. Herod was hired by the enemy to keep all these Jewish people at bay. And so his only job was to make sure that you knew, hey, the Romans are great. You should, be, you should understand we're not Jewish anymore. We're going to be Romans now. It's great to be a Roman. Wouldn't you like to be a Roman too? Da, 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 da. That was Herod's job. He was the one that was going to convince everybody it was good to be Roman. And he would lie and he would cheat and he would steal from his own people in order to keep the Romans happy. And you convinced this is a good thing. Herod's father was a nut job. Herod's father was the one who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. Herod's father was a, a sinful, fallen man. He killed his own sons because he didn't want them to have the job after him. He killed his wife because he didn't like her. He drowned his sons. Herod's dad was a nut job. Herod got the job after his dad. His name was Herod Antipas. Now, this Herod Antipas was a bad dude, too. He built the temple. You've heard of Herod's temple? Like, it's a good thing? Herod built the temple so the Jews would stop pestering him. And he built the temple, not with his own money, but he taxed the living daylights out of the Jews to make sure that he could build them a temple as big and grandiose as Solomon's. Herod was the one who killed John the Baptist. That's the Herod we're talking about. The one who sliced off his head because a woman danced in front of him. Herod was the one that Jesus said, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees, and particularly beware of Herod's teaching. That's in Mark 8 and verse 15. In fact, Jesus did not like this Herod a whole lot, not only because he took the life of John the Baptist, not only because he was teaching falsehoods, but also because he was a sly politician. Jesus called Herod that fox. Beware of that fox. Herod, and not in a good way like he's crafty. <laughs> this is in a bad way. Jesus did not have time for, for Herod. And by the way, at Jesus' crucifixion, there's a verse in the Bible that says, you should know this, Jesus got sent to Herod. Herod beat the living daylights out of him because he said, if I beat him, maybe I don't have to kill him because he didn't want to kill him and make a big riot. So he beat him, and then he sent him to Pilate, and Pilate said, what, what is this guy doing here? I don't want him. So Pilate beat him and then sent him back to Herod. And Herod's court is the one that killed, killed Jesus. This is the Herod that we're talking about. By the way, there's a verse in the Bible that says, after the death of Jesus, because Pilate and Herod worked together, they became besties afterwards, best friends. Herod is trying to get the Jews to believe being Roman is a good thing. Forget about God's promises. Forget about everything you've heard about being Jewish. Our power will be restored once we give up and say that we're Romans. Herod was simply here to keep the Jews at bay for Rome. So bottom line, churches, Herod was worse than Rome. Herod was a traitor to his own people. And he hired people to do the job for him. And this official was one of the main guys that did the job Herod. Now this official has a crisis. His son is sick. And who does he go see? Jesus. 
This official represents Herod's group. In fact, just so you know, Herod's group actually had a name. <laughs> Every group needs a good name, right? Do you know what Herod's group was called? The people who were on the same train as Herod, the people who pushed all the same stuff as Herod, the people who said it's great to be Roman. Do you know what their names were? They were called the Herodians. And this official was one of the chiefs in the party. He made his business to help Rome subdue the Jews. He lied about who Rome was. He promoted propaganda that led the demise of his own people. He promoted violence and death in order to get the job done. He wanted to divide the Jews family by family in order to serve Rome. This official was a politician who represented everything the Jews opposed. He represented everything that God hates. Why would I say that? Well, I bring you back to the verse in Proverbs. Look at how many things this official checks, how many boxes. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, check. A lying tongue, check. Hands that shed innocent blood, check. A heart that devises wicked plans, check. Feet that make haste to run to evil, check. A false witness who breathes out lies, check. And one who sows discord among the brethren, Check. Jesus had every right to hate this official. He represented everything Jesus hated, everything that God hated. But he's in a crisis moment. His son is going to die, and he's got all the money in the world. But all the money in the world won't get him the doctors that can heal his son. His son is going to die, and he is desperate. He hears that Jesus is healing left and right. So he thinks to himself, what choice do I have? So we go to the next verse, verse 48. Jesus responds to this official and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now this has nothing to do with healing his son. Why did Jesus answer this official this way? This seems to be kind of like on a different topic altogether. Why talk about believe? Why ask this guy to believe? You need to understand in this verse, this verse says, can you throw it up there one more time? All, when it says you, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, you is a southern you, which means it means you all. You all. It doesn't mean you individually, it means you all. Do you know who Jesus is talking about in this phrase? The Herodians. He's talking about this group of people. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you refuse to believe. The Herodians need signs to believe that Jesus was sent by God. They are too sold out to their ideology that Rome is their savior, that they are not going to believe any individual is going to pull off saving their, their, their land. Only Rome can do it. Jesus identifies this guy not by his, his personality, not by his individuality, but by the group that he belongs to. And he says, your group claims to be followers of God. You read the scriptures. You know God's word. You say you believe God's word. But the only thing that can convince you in your group is somebody doing magic. This guy asked Jesus for magic. He wasn't interested in knowing if Jesus was a Messiah. He wanted magic. Jesus changes the subject. He immediately changes the subject. He says, you're desperate for the health of your son. You should be desperate for the health of your soul and your son's soul. 
you're desperate for the wrong thing. Jesus wanted this man's faith to be real enough that he would trust the word of God alone, the word of Jesus alone. Stop looking for signs and wonders. You've got to believe that what I say is true and right, and you've got to believe my word. This man was not used to that because he had sold his soul to Rome. He wanted God to perform some action, and being, being a performance monkey is not what God is about. Nowhere in scripture are we ever commended by a faith that demands magic. Did you know that? Nowhere in scripture. In fact, faith is all about taking God at his word. That's the definition of faith. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, it puts it pretty simple for us. The Jews demand signs. Does that sound familiar? Jews demand signs. I want to see signs. I want to see magic. Greeks seek wisdom. Plato, Aristotle, they want wisdom. Make it make sense to me. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Herodians believed God's word. That's what their whole lives were about, but they didn't believe Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. And Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you don't believe in God. In fact, in 1 John 2.22, if you're wondering how Jesus and the Father fit together and why you have to believe in Jesus in order to claim that you believe in God the Father, 1 John 2.22 says this, who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the what, church? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Church, you understand that? You cannot have a relationship with the one true God without believing in the one true Son of God. They go together. It's a package deal. If you don't, you're saying that the Father has lied to us. If you want to read more about that, 1 John is full of that kind of language. The bottom line, church, is this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This man was not taking Jesus' word for it. He wants proof. He wants magic. He wants signs. And Jesus addresses him, though sharp, was necessary. He basically is a little ticked off. And he says, your people, you people, you always want magic. When will you take me at my word? Verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. He's pleading. At this point he says, I don't know what you're talking about. All I know is my, my son is sick. He's going to die. Please help me. Do you, see, do you see his anxiousness here? He doesn't want to have a debate with Jesus. All he says is, you can do magic, and unless you're there to do it, my son's going to die. Please come with me. Please come with me and fix my son. I've tried everything. He's going to die. Please, please, for God's sake, come with me. So Jesus challenges the official. He challenges him to believe that he is God's real promised Messiah. He needs this official to dig into his own abandoned theology and give God first place, not in the reputation he has as a Jew, but in his individuality before God. So Jesus does something extremely gracious, but it comes at a cost for the official. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Did you catch anything there? 
Is this a test to the official at all? Or is this just a, oh, good, he healed his son. Is this a test? Does, is the official being tested here in his faith? Yeah, he is. Because Jesus is saying, go away. Your son will be fine. This man thinks, unless Jesus is there, my son is going to die. Jesus is saying, are you going to take me at my word? I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to be condescending to your need. I'm going to help you. I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to fulfill your request, but you've got to walk away from me and leave me in the rearview mirror. This man thinks, no Jesus, no magic. <laughs> and Jesus says, go away, leave and believe. And the question is, will he leave or will he keep pestering Jesus to come? And it goes on to say, the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and went on his way. This is a small mustard seed of faith. But this is where it begins to take root. This guy should have taken Jesus at his word, and he seems to. He walks away. Leaving Jesus in the rearview mirror, this guy believed the word of Jesus alone, and he begins to walk home. Verse 51, and as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Wonderful. My son is better. Jesus, you know, the, the miracle worked. But you know what happens to us people who have a little bit of faith and not a lot of faith? We have a tendency to think, well, maybe the medicine worked. Maybe the doctors came through. Maybe it wasn't Jesus. Maybe it wasn't this promise of Jesus. This guy started thinking, maybe my son just started getting better on his own. Maybe I just should have waited a little longer. And how do I know that? Because this guy surprises you in verse 52. So here's what he says. The official said to them, asked them, the hour when his son began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's about two o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. Church, why does he ask his representatives this question? He wants to know if this was Jesus or a fluke. Not a lot of faith there, is there? Do you want to go, oh, this guy is full of faith. Even in his question, he's doubting whether or not Jesus was who he said he was. Verse 53. The father knew the hour at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live, which assumingly is about two o'clock in the afternoon. And he himself believed and all his household. Are you impressed with this official's faith? No? No one's impressed with it? No, because I would never ask God for a sign. I'd just take God at his word every time. I didn't realize I was sitting among such strong, faith-filled people here. You are an impressive bunch, I have to say. We do this all the time, right? Lay out the fleece like that's some noble thing to do. Why not just take Jesus at his word? This official we are not impressed with. What we are impressed with is the fact that Jesus comes so far down to his little grain of faith in order to meet his deepest, what he thought was his deepest need. But when that need gets met, the health of his son, when his son gets better, his soul is repaired. And not only his soul, but did you catch that last phrase in there? Not only his, but his household as well. You will see this official in heaven, and you will see his son as well. This guy represents everything that makes Jesus' life difficult. You need to understand this. 
This guy is the visible representative of what makes Jesus' life so hard. This guy took Jesus' best friend away from him. He's part of that group. This guy, this guy lies and cheats and hurts the Jewish people, all in the name of making things better for the enemy Rome. Jesus had no, no responsibility to this guy because he is in the wrong group. He is in the enemy group. He's in the hate category. He's in the Proverbs category of everything that God hates, and yet God leans way down and meets his need. Why? Because church, God loves him and not his group. God chose to love the guy, but not his group. He treats him as an individual at a breaking point. He gives him every reason to believe because Jesus knows what condemns this guy is not his political affiliation. What condemns this guy is not the sign on his front yard. What condemns this guy is not the, the, the mode of life that he's chosen to live. It's not the parade that he walks in. It's not the group that he affiliates with. What condemns this guy is his, his inability to believe. And so Jesus takes him out of the group category, sees him as a person, and says to him, I will meet what you perceive to be your greatest need, but you've got to believe in me. Jesus gave this enemy of the people something better than a sign. He gave them the reliability of his word. So I have some so what's for you. Number one, believe that unexpected people sometimes will show unexpected faith. This is really important because we have got to get out of our cultural group mentality and realize some people in those groups, unexpected to us, will show unexpected faith. There are lots of groups that don't give Jesus the time of day. The Herodians certainly did not. They did not believe in Jesus Christ. This official worked for the enemy. The, the guy that killed John the Baptist, this guy loved working for. But Jesus gave this enemy a gift. Listen, the most unloving thing we can do, church, is to identify somebody by their group. The point of the fact is, whatever group people are in, they're just filling a hole they're trying to fill. They don't know how to fill it any other way. They're looking for anything to give their life meaning. Even to the point where their group becomes a religion. Whatever it is, they are looking for something to fill that hole that is in every one of us. And Jesus Christ is showing us here, stop looking at groups, start looking at people. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Don't buy into justified hate. It's okay to hate this group. No, it's not. They might be on all of the checklists, the Proverbs checklist of all the things that God hates, but so was this official, and Jesus loved him. We're never allowed to dilute a person down to the sum of their group. No matter how wrong or duped or off their rocker that group might be, that's not what we do. That actually is the definition of hate. Well, Craig, I don't hate anybody. Maybe not. Here's, uh, here, you guys like lists. I do too, so I'm going to give you a list. This is how you know you're walking down the hate group. How do I know I'm actually hating somebody or hating a group? 
or hating somebody enough to put them into a group. Number one, diminish somebody to the sum of things you don't like. Then you assign them to a group you decide most best describes them. Then you reduce their individuality to the sum of that group's identity. Then you assume their heart based on their affiliation, based on their ties. And then once you do that, then you can stop seeing them as a soul in need. That's the process. And it's so easy to fall in because this is culturally acceptable. It's actually pushed in our world today. This list. Well, Craig, give me something I can live by. Give me something else, all right? Here's another, another list. How do you know that you're loving them? Number one, see the individual before you see the individual's group. Number two, treat people as lost souls, not lost causes. Number three, reach out to individuals by realizing their need first. Number four, pray for all, even those who persecute you. Oh, that's a hard one, isn't it? Uh, That's not my idea, by the way. That's straight out of Jesus' mouth. I, I stole that. That's his. Number five, do not put boundaries on anyone. God can help you to love everyone. We put boundaries on people and we say, there's no way I can ever love somebody like that because they're in that group. You have diminished the grace of God and the power of God to break down strongholds. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more powerful than we can imagine. Listen, we should love our neighbor, right? How many people know you should love your neighbor? You know you should love your neighbor? Yeah, I stole that too. That's Jesus (laughs) saying too. How many people know that Jesus also said you should love your enemies? You knew that? Well, in case you didn't, here's a verse. Matthew 5, 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your fathers and daughters of your father who is in heaven. This is what Jesus did for the Herodian that came to visit him this day. Jesus didn't identify this soul by his group. He identified him by his need. And he reached out to meet the need. Love is not agreeing with somebody. Listen, love is not agreeing with somebody so that you don't bring up the conversation or bring up the elephant in the room or or never challenge the group's philosophy. That's not what love is. No more than it is if your kid picks up the car keys. All my kids are driving now. But if your kid picks up the car keys and starts driving around the neighborhood without a driver's license, I'm assuming you're going to have a conversation with them. That is not smart, not right, and they shouldn't do it. It doesn't mean you don't address the philosophies of the group, but it also means we need to see these people as individuals looking for love, looking for acceptance, looking for meaning in a place that may not be the place God would want them to start. Love is engaging them at their greatest need and serving them relentlessly and sacrificially. How do I do this? Just remember, people are not the sum of their group affiliations. They are souls in need of rescuing. You may not be ready for this, by the way. You may be sitting there thinking to yourself, Craig, I shouldn't have come today. This is really hard stuff. Well, you're here, so tough luck. All you got to do is pray, and you would be surprised at the love that God gives you for the people that you can't stand. I know you don't hate them. I I get that. But they're not on your, maybe they're not on your love list either. Remember, the gospel will definitely challenge groups, but it can change people. Let me say that one more time because it's 
actually pretty good. The gospel will definitely challenge groups, but it can change people. Number two, do you take God at his word or do you need more? This is the case of the official. He was not taking God at his word. He needed the magic. Do we need to tweak God's word a little bit to get it to fit in 2022? God has given us his word, the Bible, and every week I try and stand up here and say how relevant it is to everyday life. But I'm not brilliant. You can go home and read it yourself, and you can see how relevant it is to everyday life. The challenges when groups say it's out of date. When groups say it doesn't apply anymore. When groups say we need a God that fits the new world in which we live. Then you know that group is wrong. God never changes. He says it in scripture over and over and over again. And his word never, he's smart enough to put together his word so that it applies to every part, every chapter of human history. What does God say in his word that is a bridge too far for your faith? How about his stand on sexuality? That's being challenged big time today. How about his call to love your enemies unconditionally? That's hard. How about the expectation that you would, you, you would um, reorient your priorities around his will for your life? That's tough. Even explaining to somebody who doesn't go to church why you tithe, that's a tough thing to do sometimes. But we do it because we know this is God's plan for our lives. We live in a world that thrives on questioning the reliability of God's word. And so I wonder, what is the subject that your culture has sold you that begins your mind thinking it's okay to tweak God's word a little bit? Better than any sign, Jesus has given us the best gift that he could give us. In Scripture, God tells us, Jesus actually tells us, he says, listen, I'm going to give you a world-shattering sign. It's going to be the sign that blows every other sign out of the water. It's going to be the most, the biggest miracle you've ever imagined, and I'm going to give it to you, and then I'm not going to give you a whole lot more after that. That's basically it. You're going to get this sign, and that's going to be the biggest sign I can give to you, and once you have that sign, you should be good to go. Do you know what the sign is? His resurrection. Jesus says, the best gift I can give to you is the reliability of my word. I will rise from the dead. He even says to the devil at the temptations in the wilderness, did you know this? First thing he says to the devil is the reliability of his word is the best thing of all. Matthew 4, 4, he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus says, the best sign I'm going to give to you that you can trust my word always is I will raise from the dead. Verse 38 of Matthew 12, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Give us magic. But he answered them and he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for signs, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What happened to Jonah? He was in a fish for how many days and how many nights? And then he was vomited up on the shore. You remember that? And then, like a trooper, he goes to Nineveh, and they all repent, and he rejoices, right? Well, it didn't end quite that way. Jesus goes three days into the belly of the tomb, into the belly of death, and he comes out a conquering 
hero holding the keys to death and the grave. And if you want to get out of death and the grave, you should go to the person who has the keys. In God's mercy, he gives us a story to illustrate this very thing. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the sign that blows all other signs away. That should be enough for all of us. Jesus rose from the dead, and then he goes to his disciples. And he starts showing himself to all of these different people, sometimes at the same time, sometimes individually. We've got a few stories of what happened afterwards, but some of his own disciples wouldn't believe. One of those famous disciples who wouldn't believe his name was Thomas. Thomas says, I need a sign. So in John 20, verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand, it's so gross, isn't it? Put my hand into his side, I feel his innards, I will not believe. Thomas is saying, I need a sign. Come on, I'm not taking your word for it. I'm not taking Jesus' word for it. He said he raised from the dead and out there, no tomb. Somebody stole the body. Something happened. The disciples said, we've seen the Lord. I'm telling you, it's true. He said, no, 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 no. I got to see it. I got to I gotta apparently feel it. Gross. So Jesus, what does he do? What does Jesus do? Verse 27. He shows up among them. And then he makes a beeline to Thomas. And he says, Thomas, I wasn't here in person, but I know what you said. Apparently, you need to touch and feel in order to believe. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and stuff it into my side. And don't disbelieve, but believe. And what does Thomas do? He responds, my Lord. And I mean, what's he going to do? My Lord and my God. Do you see Jesus just lowering himself to where Thomas needs him to be? But then the next verse is pretty powerful, guys, because he talks about us. All of us, right here. He says, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Do you know why? Because we take God's word for it. It's faith. Faith is not having Jesus here so he can prove himself to us so we can shove our hand up his side. Faith is taking Jesus at his word. Jesus' word is better than his signs. So let's stop letting our newly minted cultural groups put limitations on God's abilities. Let's start having faith that can move mountains because we take God at his word. Let's realize the power in prayer all by itself. Let's stop saying, well, the least I can do is pray for you. And let's start saying, I've got the power of God at work in my prayers. I'm going to get on my knees every day and I'm going to pray for your need as if it were my own. Let's start taking God's word for it. Let's stop letting culture dictate what we should and shouldn't believe because it's archaic or out of date. And let's unashamedly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's unchanging. He's smart enough to make it so that it applies to every period of human history. Let's live it as though we believe that. Let's start believing every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let's start believing it like we believe we need food every day. Let's run to him and believe his word. Let's pray.
Father, I'm grateful for our time that we spend here today talking about this event when the official came up to you, demanded signs because he was in a desperate way. First of all, that you would, wow, that, that you would meet his need as an enemy, as somebody who just a short period of time before this hated you, but now is desperate enough where you were his last hope and you met his need and you gave him his son back. You are really good to us, more than we deserve. And you answer prayers before we even pray them. And you meet needs before we even know they're there. And you protect us and preserve us in ways that we don't even know about. And so, Lord, I just want to take some time at the end of this message to say thank you. Thank you for meeting our needs before we even have them. And thank you, Father, for loving us enough that you would condescend to our needs. It, it doesn't escape me that some of us have done things that you hate. Some of us still do. And yet you continually love us as sons and daughters of yours. And you gave us your son so that we could be redeemed. You went the distance and all we have to do is believe. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to commit to the power of that gospel and the love that you incredibly show to us and ever, you make the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Help us to live our lives the same. Help us to have the ability through your spirit to love those who are very difficult to love. And help us, Father, not to fall into the cultural trap of seeing people as groups and not souls in need. Let us never walk through a field treading over the weeds thinking that we are working for something higher. Help us never to forget how you love every single person and help us to do the same. In Jesus' name.